name is Sam Jenks, and welcome to another episode of The Way We Source, a podcast hosted by Kodiak Hub, where we share our talks with procurement practitioners, leaders, experts, consultants, content gurus, and people that we find downright inspiring, diving into the role that sourcing and procurement plays in the way that we live. If you like today's episode, make sure to rate the program and give us a follow. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting a mover and shaker in the future of the procurement industry, an innovative professional who is passionate about ESG and workforce management, a senior member and fellow at Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply, bringing over 15 years of experience in supply chain and procurement from businesses like Langer Rourke, currently serving as CEO and founder of Neutral, Mr. Alex Gosney. Alex, welcome to the show. Cheers, Sam. Lovely little intro there. Very nice indeed. Very nice indeed. Great to be here today. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, happy to have you on. You deserve it, Alex. Why don't we get right into things? I'm curious, what exactly does procurement and sourcing mean to you? So for me, sourcing is something that you do when you go to the supermarket on a on a Saturday or or wherever it might be, and you and you you source in different goods. So it might be you you go and get your croissants from one shop, and then you go and get your detergent from another shop. But it's just buying uh, tactical. Um, you know, you're in there, you, you're getting involved, and you you're trying to find a good deal. But there's not too much other stuff that goes with it. Procurement <clears throat> is you know. Procurement's changed drastically, what I'd say, in the last five years. Um, and it involves lots of different facets for me. You know, you've got risk management in there, you've got covenants, you've got strategic supply chain management, you've got the actual buy-in itself, you know, you've got the optimization of the supply chain, you've got the development of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's such a broad term that tries to encompass so many different challenging, I suppose, aspects of what we do on a day-to-day you know yeah. if you i think how much procurement's changed even over the last five years you know probably in the the first time i saw it change dramatically probably was the eu referendum over here that was the first really step change in you know volatility that i'd experienced myself in, in the market coming out of you know joining the industry at the end of the last recession in you know 2007 2009 you know that sort of it and it was the first time personally I had experienced that. So it was very interesting to see. But I think procurement also is becoming more like governments in some respects because, you know, they are having to consider the E, the S, and the G. And, you know, mm-hmm. procurement, you know, usually the top, which cost savings is still important, but that used to be, you know, number one. And I think they're, they're being, act, you know, being asked to act more like governments now and, you know, set policy for mm-hmm. supply chains to develop into organizations. Yeah, it's becoming a more holistic role. When you joined at the at the turn of the last recession, two thousand eight, you said in the, in the space of procurement. I'm curious, what made you decide to work in the space? Did you choose the role, or did the role choose you? Um, a bit of both, I'd say. So I look, going into university, I literally had no real clue in terms of what I wanted to go and do. Wanted mm. to be, you know, a pro sports player up until going to university. That didn't play out, okay. and it was just a you know, a corridor conversation with a teacher who said, you like sport, you're pretty good at maths, why don't you go and try? It was quantity surveying in, in construction. Um, and it was actually, a, you know, through just um, looking to try and get some industry experience through my flatmate who was also working at this organisation, we sort of landed at, at Langer Up. Um, and it, it was that journey really that got me into, I suppose, the start was, 
comments today, but then also into the buying sort of process in terms of what it meant into construction. And that was, you know, very elementary at, at that stage, but it didn't take long having gone from university into then a, a placement into sort of falling in love with the construction industry, especially, but also, you know, the supply chain. Um, and, you know, it, was a, it, it became a, a founding love um, in the end. Cool to hear. Cool to hear. I mean, we love the space and we're happy that, that you do as well. 15 years flash forward. What, what made you found the business that you're in today at Neutral? I think like many people have been in industry, there's always niggles, um, you know, in terms of when you're working in big sort of blue chip organizations in terms of things that, again, you're looking to solve, but maybe you can't find the right supply chain partner to go and, and solve it with. Right. And, you know, it was the very same thing when we went to find neutral. Um, you know, we, we had a, a few different conversations with different government bodies around transparency on worker pay um, and although we could get the transparency it, it was tough to get there you know it took a lot of questions to get there and um, so we wanted to create a, a full end-to-end workforce management platform and service that gave that visibility to our clients so I think like a lot of people in my space you, you've having gone from industry into into founder you sort of have the problem and then yeah, I suppose you try and go and fix it yourself. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting way to be able to enter, right? Is is feeling it on the other side as a practitioner. Uh, mm. What what exactly is that gap, that problem in the market that you're aiming to fill at the business? So a big a big challenge that all industries have, uh, you know, transparency in supply chain. So it doesn't matter if you're in workforce, which is sort of our you know niche, or whether you're looking to procure, you know, some steel work, or whatever it might be. Mm. You know, understanding who's actually in the supply chain it can be really quite complex and, mm. you know, it, it can be global. In our perspective, it's usually a local issue, but there's lots of different layers of that labor, I suppose, cake that make up a, a workforce on construction sites. And there's lots of different ways that people can bring them in. So, you know, naively, when I was in my old organization, I just think for a temporary workforce, we'd go to you know, one of our recruitment agency partners, they bring the worker in, they pay the worker, happy days. And, you know, my naivety sort of led to us finding the, the problem that was that actually the recruitment agencies don't necessarily pay the workers. You know, they right. paid for a payroll intermediary, which introduces another party in, in there. And then there's the worker underneath. And, you know, with like any supply chain, when you get different layers and layers that you can't gain visibility of, you know, there's potential costs and there's potential risks that are, that are brought there. So we try and give that end-to-end sort of string from top to bottom, from the client into the agencies, bringing on the intermediaries and, and the worker so that we can manage the risks up and down the chain. And, you know, there's often hell of a lot of value that can be driven there. You know, it's not just about risk. There's also the all the value that can be sought from working with these fantastic organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think um, one thing that's changed maybe since I've, you know, started an industry is, is people wanting to train, upskill, and, and really work closely with the value chain. And I think you can't work closely with organizations that you don't know there. And there could be untapped value that you just don't know. So I think a, a key differentiator of ours is is showing them the full picture so they can go and, you know, work with different organizations. So there, there might be a huge opportunity that they've just brought on. And actually, you know, this specific organization can tap into a resource which is really elemental for delivering a, a construction project um, mm. in the main. So we're big, we're very big on the transparency piece. And I think it's something that, you know, people have tried to do before, but I think with the advent of new technologies and, you know, new practices, 
we've just been able to bring that to market and you know offer our clients you know hopefully tremendous value Mm. Uh, awesome, awesome beginnings and, and, and a great problem that you're trying to solve. I think transparency is, is necessary in a global supply chain, especially the types of businesses that you're, you're talking about and, and, and the industry that you're talking about. If you look at your career, right, you were a practitioner before you switched over to becoming a consultant. And I would love to double click a little bit on the life of a founder, right? It's a unique one. It's a unique journey that you choose to take. Why'd you switch? I think it was a passion. So the 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 organisation like Roku, I spent you know the majority of my career with were a fantastic organisation for investing in people, mm. um, and they're very you know they constantly want to go invest in, back in the people in their organisation. And part of that journey was going back to to university to to do a masters. Um, and being fortunate enough to be in, in that environment around, you know, the people down in, you know, the Judge Business School down at Cambridge sort of really got the the juices flowing then in terms of, mm. you know, going to be in, in that environment. Now, having stepped out of one environment into the next environment, you know, sometimes it feels like you, you're jumping into a frying pan, but, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's hugely exciting and hugely rewarding you know in terms of the the value that you can create but also the value that you can deliver on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. so you know one the, the only one bit of advice that i'd give is just go with your eyes well and truly open you know because it, it's not all pretty pictures um and you know we were laughing before and you know turning conversations into contracts mm. is you know something that is a challenge and coming from procurement into i suppose into a sales role right. you're also going on to the other side of the fence as well so it's been um yeah it's been great absolutely great and i'm fortunate that i love what i do on a day-to-day basis and that provides the you know the momentum behind what i do well, I mean, the thing that you hit upon there is both journeys are equally as rewarding, right? The the journey of being a practitioner in in a global org or being an entrepreneur equally as as rewarding. And what were some of the most rewarding lessons that you learned as a practitioner that you're now taking into being a, a, a an entrepreneur? Maybe one or two practical items or tips that you can you can be able to provide our listeners with. I mean, you you, you gave us some color there, but if you can expand upon that. Both are interrelated, but I'd say the two most important things for me are people and culture. Mm. And, you know, that was driven coming out of a family business on the practitioner side of it and the investment in people. So you've got the best people to deliver and the best culture to support those people to go and deliver right. are even more important when you're in a small organization where you, you're such a small team um, and, you know, you're reliant on each other on a day-to-day basis, not just from a, a work perspective, but also on a personal sp- perspective. And you've still got that when you're a practitioner, mm. but when you're at such a tight-knit community, you know, you, you're all so independent, interdependent on each other. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't get the right people and you don't get the right culture, ultimately, I think you're just set to fail. Um, because, you know, you can try really hard, but you'll be just, you know, trying so hard and, and just failing. Um, well, and, and I think that, you know, investing in the people can drive good culture, but do you have any, you know, things that you've learned along the way? How do you create good, good culture and good people? I think, you know, some real simple things, you know, be really authentic, be, you know, be really truthful, open mm. and transparent. We try and be as 
we're really transparent, both in terms of how we operate internally, and that's in terms of you know sharing financials with all the team, sharing forecasts with all the team. So it buys everyone into that journey we want to get. You know, try and truly, and you, everyone will have heard it a million times, but you can see the values that are up on people's walls, and, and mm. trying to truly bring the strategy and the the process back to those values so that everything underpins what you're going to do. You know, we're on the the B Cup journey ourself and you know it's that's challenging you know it's not easy mm. it's not meant to be easy but it you know it's a huge part of what we are and i think making that clear to people when we are bringing new people into the business can set the right tone to see how their reaction is to join in a business like ours because you know you'll know that joining a startup is is completely different to yeah. you know and you've got to fail fast and then you know move forward and i think being able to have that resilience so you can fail fast move forward change keep going is something that you know we absolutely look for in our people but being such a <coughs> tight-knit community mm. you know the support is is crucial i think absolutely crucial as a guest of ours once said you know make sense and translate and 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 losing fast can help you to be able to do so if we if we talk a little bit about that and i think that it goes ties nicely into the authenticity bit right as a as an entrepreneur you need to be ready to win and lose fast right um, as they say, though, when a, when a loss becomes a learning, it's 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 not winning or losing; it's winning or learning, right? 100%. Why do you think, though, that founders? Maybe you don't struggle with this yourself, but you know, with those founders that we've met on the show and that I know, whether they're in the procure tech space or like, you know, they have a tough time speaking about their losses. Why why do you think that that's the case? I think it's so easy to celebrate the wins. Mm. that i think when you know and look we've been there you you're scared when you're a startup to to celebrate the fails because you're building that trust in in the client organizations as well that you're a new organization on the block and you know these organizations are trusting you with real key components of their organization so so to then outwardly share um i suppose the failures can sometimes be quite difficult but i think you know once once you get over that step you actually really realize how rewarding it is not only to the client that you're working with because you know they actually trust that you are going to own up to it and you're not just going to try and hide it in a corner type thing you're you know, sure. you're own your problems and create solutions but i think the market um you know in terms of future clients also see that you know these organizations do mean what they the same they do want to change mm. and they are looking to push things forward you know exactly what you said sam We'd all be absolute. We'd just be lying through our teeth if we said none of us fail. You know, we must fail right. twenty times a, a week at least. Um, and our biggest challenge is trying to measure the the failures. So you know, every time you know you say you do an experiment, how are we measuring that um, sort of experiment so we can then learn from it and move on? And that that's probably been our biggest challenge. Is you know, what is the structure to allow people to fail a safely, but also to understand why you failed, so mm. we can actually learn that moving forward? Because sometimes you just in a bit of a whirlwind. You know, things are going back and forth, back and forth. You know, you got all these plates splitting, and it, that's the hardest bit to try and take that step back to understand. You know, what was actually the reason for failing? Um, because you know, we'll have made a load of failures today in the decisions we made, no doubt mm. about it. But mm. If we can make eight out of ten of them right, then I think you know we're heading in the right direction. Absolutely. When when you look at the procurement and supply chain function, because this is kind of an interesting, uh, almost psychological element, right? 
the function is focused on risk aversion, cost savings, and managing a supplier base in the way that both they can get things at the right quality with the correct levels of sustainability from an ESG perspective, as well as then, you know, the right price. And the price is is one of those elements that, of course, brings about a question of how open and transparent and authentic can you be in negotiations and like I'm just curious if we if we double click on that item mm-hmm. can procurement as a function as a role function with complete authenticity complete openness within a buyer to supplier relationship great question um I think they definitely can and I think that um I think the relationship between a client and their supplier is changing you know, even, mm-hmm. you know, we see that um, even in the engagements we're with, you know, it, it, it feels a lot, cost is still really important. Don't get me wrong, cost is still really important. We work in an industry where, you know, some of the, the net margins of our clients are, you know, less than 5%. So costs are always going to be important. But I think all so organisations also understand since the referendum, since Brexit, since, you know, UK in crisis, whatever it might be, that you need your supply chain. Mm -hmm. And without your your value chain, you ultimately won't go and deliver the products and services you need for your ultimate client organization. And their priorities are also changing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we engage with, say, developers in, in our space, but we also develop with the specialists who deliver it themselves and trying to connect the dots there as well for you know what's coming top down and also bottom up means that the relationships can start to change and you can start to be a lot more proactive. And I think data helps massively with that, Sam, in terms of right. being able to really demonstrate, you know, where you are making a positive change. And again, back to failing fast again. Where does, you know, some support need? Because sometimes, you know, when you're going through that typical 360 feedback, whether it's, you know, client, supplier, supplier, client, you know, there'll always be things that need to be said on the table. And there's, I do definitely see the relationship changing. Um, mm. You know, we're, we're a huge advocate of technology. You know, technology is a big part of the solutions that, that we deliver to our end customer. But if I spoke to all of our customers, I think the thing they also appreciate is the sort of old-fashioned customer service that that comes with it and the willingness to also pick up the phone, mm. you know, go and have that conversation. And it might be just something like this over, you know, a video call, but the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there and build that relationship, I think relationships are still going to be as crucial in, you know, as we continue to go down um, you know, this te- technological route we all are going down at this moment in time. Right. It's the classic PPT, right? The people, processes, and technology. If they live in symbiosis, then obviously they can be able to, you can be able to do great things. And I think that procurement has really started to leverage that in its true mm-hmm. sense. How do you see, and I mean, obviously, deeper relationships with suppliers can be one element of it. Um, you know, leveraging technology can be another focusing on the right people and process, uh, as well as the, the the culture in the business can be another element of it. How do you believe that procurement teams, procurement organizations can become a real force uh, within and, and a friend to really the wider business? 
Yeah, I think um, doing a lot of the things that they used to do, but also being willing to change and listen. You know, I think mm. a key part of what procurement does is listen to the organisation. You know, in terms of where point. the the business wants to go. Sometimes, you know, we can come with just solutions and throw solutions in there without, you know, taking a step back and listening to what the organisation actually wants, and realising that procurement we also need to change because you know what we're doing at the moment won't be the same as we're doing next year and what we do next year won't be the same as what we do the year after and I think that willingness to change has always been a challenge for for any function you know or any you business bet. but the fact that technology is now driving that change at such a fast rate that having a procurement process in a nice you know glossy box that is you know reviewed every two years every three years just isn't going to work. Yeah, I mean, mm. it's you know, it's got to be much more maneuvering around what is the actual business molding into in a much more dynamic fashion. You know, business yeah. is changing so fast, and it's got so many different pressures coming from so many different areas, whether it be financial, whatever it might be. The procurement needs to be, in my view, so open for change, you know, but mm. open for change in a dynamic way. And how do we create that that framework that gets people comfort, uh, comfortable around the risk and the governance and having process in place, but yeah. also being willing to accept that <clears throat> it's probably more risk not changing than it is to, you know, take a bit of risk and, and make mm. a couple of changes. I, th- I think it's interesting something that you're hitting on here as well, right? It's in any function. I think that procurement gets this kind of brand that it's very traditional and rigid. And I think that within the function, it has to be in a lot of aspects, right? Um, to be able to ensure that processes function in a particular way and that, you know, that there's no maverick spend in the business. Um, they have to be those policers sometimes. But at the same time, if you look at as you mentioned, right, procurement five years ago to where it is today, there's been a lot of change. I think that the businesses that are willing to, like you said, focus on change and focus on agility uh, because it's necessary within the function. So I think that it gets a bad rap sometimes. And I think one of the biggest things that highlights that is obviously how procurement organizations, especially best-in-class procurement organizations, have really turned things around related to the aspects of ESG, right? And ESG is a business acronym that has gotten thrown a lot around a lot in the last uh, two to three years, uh, if not, you know, five to 10 years. What do you think that corporates are currently getting right at the moment within that space? I think they're getting a lot wrong um, (laughs) in in that space. Um, Okay. So where's the room for improvement then? (laughs) I think ESG for me has become so complicated around businesses wanting to tell a story um, mm. and you know had become at risk of window dressing um by right. wanting to tell that story because they feel like they have to tell that story and I well, think, the story yeah. the story convolutes the actual output the actual the actual yeah, yeah. result right so i understand what you mean yeah mm-hmm. and, and it just becomes on it doesn't become authentic to what they're actually trying to deliver as their own brand so i think that's the risks I see around it in terms of what businesses are doing. The positives are is that if you could ever want a bigger light shining on ESG, then there is no bigger light than what is getting shined upon it at the moment. Um, Similar to what I was saying before around procurement functions, I do sometimes feel sorry for big corporates that they're also 
being asked to, you know, basically operate as governments or, you know, and, and basically set policy in these areas. You know, business, you know, old school business was all around, you know, efficiencies, profits. Now they've got this all other, whole other things to consider. And that is absolutely the right thing to do. And, you know, one of the reasons we went down the, the B Cup journey. But I think it, for big corporates, it is a big challenge, I think, to get that balance of how do they main what they're doing, a business, you know, remaining profitable mm. by also telling an authentic story in terms of what they are actually trying to do when it comes to ESG, not just, you know, pretty pictures and, and policy documents that, you know, might look nice, but in practice actually don't mean a great deal. Well, that, that transitions nicely into another question then. When the sustainable choice of supplier services is also the more expensive one, right? How do you think that multinationals can actually be convinced to make the smart buying decision? Where's the value? You know, is the value in in making the more expensive choice, or is actually that not the value potentially? You know, mm. I don't think you've all. I don't think you've always got to make the sustainable choice if that's not actually adding enough value back into the organisation. I still think that there needs to be business critical decisions around, you know, is this actually adding the value and how are we measuring the value back to, you know, the measurement of it again, or is, are we just doing this because we think it's the right thing to do? Cause we're, you know, we're scared to tell the right, the story in the right way. I think all of us want to make more sustainable choices. Of course, you know, that, that is where business is going. That's where people are going. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and that's where business have, reacted from in some respects is in the the customers are asking for it and you know we, sure. again we we see this you know we, we see a massive shift change in um the way that money is flowing into the construction industry in terms of you know things like sustainable bonds or sustainable refinancing which puts you know specific kpis in place for these organizations to hit so the, the money is definitely heading in that direction but when you look at that individual decision I think it all has to be come back down to the value in terms of what that's going to be creating. But sometimes realizing that the initial additional cost over the long term, when you actually model it out over a five, 10 year period of continually making those sustainable decisions, is the right decision in the long term. Not just because that's going to cost a bit more, but actually, as a business, I'm not going to be able to access finance because of these unsustainable decisions that I'm making on tactical procurement elements so when you look at it at the bigger picture you wouldn't be a sustainable business because you know the mm. banks that you go into the you know the pension funds that are all financing your business won't want to invest in you if you don't make these right choices and i think ultimately that's what it comes down to is that if you follow the bouncing ball of the money a lot of the time <clears throat> it'll be the money that dictates what the value chains do and if you know, the money starts to really throw their weight around, which I think they are getting there, you know, in terms of it, it, sustainable investment funds, you see more and more demands from this area. Right. Then that'll become an easier decision for, for procurement teams to make, not just, you know, not just environmentally, not just mm. socially, not just for, you know, the additional governance house, but all three as a combined package. And I think that value proposition of getting that right is incredibly powerful you know, incredibly powerful and unlock tremendous value for, for organizations. Great insights. What's one thing, Alex, that you wish that you knew today, or I'm sorry, that you wish you, you knew at the beginning of your 
career that you now know today? I wish I'd, I wish I'd a new, <laughs> I wish I'd a new what I knew when we set this organization up that there's actually lots of members of the labor supply chain that just completely go hidden in mm. the value chain. Um, and with that, it brings businesses untold risk, both not only to the equity of the people that they have on their construction projects, but also in terms of the financial viability of their businesses as well. Um, the, the impact of knowing your supply chain, being to be able to make the decisions that you can go do, if I'd have knew that at day one, I'd have probably made a hell of a lot different decisions over that initial period than I would do today. Having now sat on the other side of the fence and are just mm. focusing on one you know, specific niche area within procurement and understanding the specialist nature that goes into that, you really do start to understand the detail. So I think it also plays the part of, you know, having the specialists within your team that know that specific area inside out, if they even come from a supplier into your organization, they will know that category a million times more right. than, than a generalist. You know, if I think of what I know now compared to when I was in, I suppose, a generalist um, head of procurement role, just in that channel, you know, it's incredible what you can learn by just focusing on one specific element um, and that element changes constantly um so yeah that that'd be my uh one thing I'd, I'd do slightly differently well life is full of great learnings and i'm happy that you were able to share a, a small portion a small sliver of your time with us now as well so we were able to get to learn more about you and what you guys are doing at neutral I'd like to transition into the last part of the episode where we get to know Alex Gosney a little bit more as a person rather than just as the founder and the CEO of Neutral and a guru within the space of supply chain and procurement. Uh, it's our little uh, session where we do a quick fire, uh, our Kodiak moment as we talk about, you know, Kodak, the old the camera brand, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Kodak, the old camera brand, they had a Kodak moment where they captured a moment in time. Now we want to do our Kodiak moment where we capture just a small moment in time between you and I, Alex, something special, right, <laughs> for our listeners. Really just three to four quick fire questions. Uh, if you're able to answer them with one sentence or one word, that'd be fantastic. So we, we keep a quick fire. Great. One thing that you're at a party and you are putting on music. Um, what what music are you putting on? What band or what song? Funk music. All right. Okay. Any particular artists? Um, not a particular artist. I'd go for a little uh, sort of mega mix of different funk music. Very cool. A podcast or a book that you can recommend right now to our listeners? Quite generic, but I love Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett. I was lucky to be um, at a panel last week with him um, on Construction Future Workforce. And I do some of the guests that he has on there are absolutely tremendous. So, as someone going into the founder space, it's always interesting to listen to some of the stories of you know, these big CEOs because they, they have the same problems as we have on a day to day basis. Mm. And I think that's you know, a key part of these podcasts is that everyone's having the same challenges, yep. you know, you're not on your own. Um, and just keep going, <laughs> just keep going. I'll never forget. I was sitting at a, a presentation at Saster, which is a very large software as a service event that happens in San Francisco every year. And there was a VP of sales at a very fast growing organization that was a unicorn organization. And they said, 
if you think that the uh, roof is burning in your business, don't worry because it's burning everywhere. Yeah. And I thought I thought that was comforting as well, right? Uh, everyone's got problems, and it's nice to nice to be able to share them. And again, back to what we were talking about today, it's important to talk about the wins as much as the losses. Last question: If you have an all expenses paid trip, a vacation uh, paid for you and and guests, maybe as well, where are you heading tomorrow? I'd take me and my family. So I've got a wife and two young kids, and I'd go because the kids absolutely love animals. I'd take them on a safari, um, probably over to Africa somewhere. So uh, it'd be the family trip to a safari. Very exciting. And I'm sure that your kids would have a great time. It was a great time having you. Yeah. It, it was a great time having you on here as well. We appreciate your time. If people are trying to reach out or get to know you or the business at Neutral, what you're doing more, how could they be able to get in touch? Hit us up on uh, LinkedIn. So you'll, you'll find us on there in terms of our channels. We're also on X, formerly Twitter. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach on LinkedIn or reach out to me directly as well. Shout out, Elon, if you're listening to this. Thank you so much (laughs) for the time, Alex. I appreciate having you on, all right? Have a good rest of your day. Cheers, Sam. 